You are joining Making a Difference with Melissa Clark, a new show that shares the compelling stories and voices of well-known and everyday people who change the world in big and small ways. Enjoy our guests. Call in or just listen to be inspired for this show was made with you in mind. Please join us every Saturday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time with our special guests. And you can listen to our recast at www.melissaclarkshow.com. Thank you so much for joining me on a Saturday. This is Making a Difference. I'm Melissa Clark. One of my jobs is to report, and I report for local newspapers here in Brooklyn. One of this Narcy Courier, the other one is Kings County Politics, and they actually send me to do career day. So these little kids are so cute. I go to career day and they want to know exactly what I do for my job and they have so many questions and I give them my expertise. Now I've only been doing this for three and a half years, but I have people on my show who's been doing this for decades. And one of them is the most amazing Michael Musto. Um, he's a celebrity journalist and I'm so proud to know him now. So thank you, Michael, so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Nice to see you, Melissa. Uh, thank you, Michael. You're the best. We just had you on Talking Live with Dr. Robbie. Yes, that was fun. Yeah, thank you so much. Now, I first discovered you in my teens. I saw you on VH1 Behind the Music in oh. Studio 54, the making of Studio 54, or the documentary that they had. And I love that. I mean, I, was, I can't I, believe I'm... I'm somebody, one of my Facebook friends said, I'm going to submit you to the uh, Guinness World Book of Records because... He thinks I've probably been in more documentaries than anybody <laughs> And that's it's, because I've been around a long time. I remember everything and I'm a good kind of figure to look back and tell you what happened, whether it was nightlife, politics, gay life, everything. I love it. I love it so much. Now, can you, now you had a column in the Village Voice. Is it, uh, say the name of it again. I think it was La Dolce Musto. La Dolce Musto, which was based um, not only on the Fellini movie, La Dolce Vita, but Gilda Radner on Saturday Night Live had a spoof of that movie called La Dolce Gilda. It was so beautifully done. Oh, wow. Yeah, and I had a column from 1984, mm -hmm. really till 2013 when I was laid off. But then when they had a new owner, a new editor, they brought me back as a writer. And I was pretty much there uh, to the bitter end when it folded uh, two wow. years ago. Wow. So how did you first get started in, um, in journalism? If I can kindly ask you, were your parents big readers or was anybody a writer in your family? Well, my parents weren't that educated because they grew up at a time when you had to just sort of sometimes drop out of school in the case of my father and work to help your family. Or in the case of my mother, she got married, became a homemaker. They were both very bright. And one great thing was they filled the shelves of the, the den in our house with literature. I mean, whether it be David Copperfield, Little Women, Moby Dick, I read all those books growing up. They also had subscriptions to the New York Daily News Daily Newspaper, as well as QCUE Magazine, which was a weekly magazine that had listings and theater, TV, and movie reviews. And I devoured all that stuff. And so they really were a good influence on me in that case. And in, in school, in high school, I started working for the school uh, newspaper and this yearbook. Then I went to Columbia and I ended up working for the Barnard Bulletin. Barnard is the sister school of Columbia. Uh -huh. And then the, the people at Columbia Daily Spectator, the Columbia paper, 
noticed my work at the Barnard Bulletin, they brought me over and I became the theater critic for The Spectator. Wow. And what is, what's about your writing that's so amazing that you are Michael Musto? What, what, do you do anything different or? Everyone is different as a writer. I mean, the, the great thing at The Village Voice is it's a paper about the writer's mm -hmm. voices and they encourage me to find my voice. When I started the column, I said to Karen Durbin, my personal editor, what do I do? You know, and she's like, no, do whatever you want. This is your space. Uh, you won't know how far to go until you've gone too far. And the, it, the space kept growing from a third of a page to a full page, that it was a full page with daily blogs. And I always had to fill it from my imagination. Nobody told me what to do. Sometimes it's easier to get an assignment. Write about this and you just do. I had that space every week to fill from scratch. And it was a challenge, but it was also a great opportunity as a writer. So I learned to kind of write with a very personal passion, with humor, but also very pointed and outspoken. And I think that's what every writer should do. Find your voice. Don't Find be afraid your to show your fan mentality, but also don't be afraid to put your foot out there into the waters and say something nobody else would dare to say. I love it. Now, is your writing different as opposed, like your audience, right? So you write for the New York Times or you write for the Village Voice. Is your um, voice different in any one of those or do you just keep it the same? You try to keep it the same, but it doesn't work that way. I was okay. so spoiled at the Village Voice because they let me just indulge in my style and write whatever I wanted within limits. Uh, when other publications have wanted my style, what I often find is once they get it, they can't really handle it. Because look, I talk about advertisers, against advertisers. I talk against powerful people. And uh, at one point in the 90s, New York Magazine wanted to hire me away from the Village Voice. And I actually sensed that I'd be smart enough to stay. And that's what I did. Uh, because I thought New York Magazine, after a few weeks, is going to realize this isn't really right for our voice here. It's too outspoken. It's too this. It's too that. So sometimes I become self-conscious when I get a, an assignment from a publication because I'm like, they're not gonna be able to handle the Michael Musto style. I sort of tone it down, cater it a little bit to their needs while also being myself. I'm not a total whore. <laughs> <laughs> I love you, you are, you are the best. You are, so, you are yourself, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I like that a lot. Um, do you ever get uh, ridiculed for your writing? Um, does anybody ever, did anybody ever make you feel bad for what you said about them or? Oh, sure. I always said, if you walk into a room and half the people run away, you're doing a good job. Your job as a writer, especially I was a gossip columnist, basically, is not to placate people and write press releases. I scared a lot of publicists. I scared a lot of celebrities. And a lot of them love me. A lot of them come up to me and say I was their salvation or whatever. So uh, that's the best way to do your job is not be afraid of, of stepping on toes and offending people. You have to offend people if you're going to tell the truth. Yeah, totally. Um, now, what do you think a healthy relationship between an editor and a writer is? I think it should be close, but not that close. I don't think it should be hands-on. I had mm -hmm. the best editors at the Village Voice because they respected my voice as a writer. They wanted me to indulge and write whatever I wanted, but they would give suggestions. Maybe we need to tweak this paragraph. Maybe this isn't clear. Maybe this is too much. Uh, that's fine. I love working with an editor who's actually out to improve my work because no, no writer is perfect. But you don't want someone too hands-on, someone's going to rewrite your stuff and take it away from what you intended. So, you know, yeah, keep a certain distance, editors. I totally agree with that. Yes, absolutely. Um, do you ever take your work personally? You're an openly gay male. 
um, you've been around, do you ever take, like, if you, like, say somebody was homophobic, what would you write about them? Like, would you, would you just be yourself, or would you tiptoe around anything, or? Oh, it, I take it very personally, and I write mm -hmm. usually in the first person. My column was La Dolce Musto. It was my life. It was like my personal diary. So, of course, I'm writing as myself, and I'm personally offended by homophobia because, like you say, I'm a gay man. I'm speaking for a community. I'm also speaking just for myself. How dare you is basically what I'm saying. And anything that offends me personally, I put a personal touch into what I write. And I'm not afraid of I, me, moi, 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 all those words because uh, I think it makes my writing more potent, more personal, and more special. So you have a big following in the gay community, correct? I think so, but also, you know, when I started the column, I thought the gay community would welcome me, and they didn't. I really had to earn their, their trust. I got some criticisms along the way. Nobody just says, oh, you're a gay uh, writer, we love you. It's like Pete Buttigieg. The gays didn't love him just because he was a gay candidate. But at this point, I'm like some old oracle, you know, I'm like the Buddha of the gay movement or something. I've been through it all. I'm a Sondheim song. And I think they do know that I know what I'm talking about. So why, why did they not accept you in the beginning? Can you give us some examples? I was writing about downtown nightlife and somebody said, oh, you only write about anybody with a mohawk, which isn't even true. I was writing about drag performers, performance artists. And yeah, I write about people of the night who are celebrities to me, just like movie stars. Uh, some of them are 15 minute celebrities, but they're flashy and they're wild, they're creatively radioactive and I found them exciting. So I was kind of changing the game of what you're allowed to cover. Some people thought I was too superficial. Some people thought, why are you not being superficial? Why are you writing about AIDS as, as the epidemic was mounting and activism started? And you can only do what you do. You have to ignore the criticism and just keep going. And I've gotten so much love and support through the years. Uh, not, yeah. necessarily, not from the gay establishment, but, but from readers that I trust. Of course, of course. And you actually brought national attention to the um, brutal murder of one of a club kid, um, Andre Me uh, Melendez, Angel, in, yeah. in 1996. Uh, can you tell us exactly what happened um, with him and why was it so important to you to bring that out? Well, Michael Alec is, uh, he was the leader of the club kid movement. Uh, he used to do a night at the Limelight Club. And uh, Freeze, this guy Robert Riggs was his roommate. They got into a fight with Angel, who was a drug dealer, uh, a fight over money, and it escalated. They ended up killing Angel chopping up the body, putting it in a box, and throwing him in the Hudson. Um, Michael Alec had called me as a mess that he had been fired from Limelight. He made up bogus reasons, or I don't know what he was saying. But I asked around, and I found out uh, the buzz about the murder. I put in a mention of a missing person, and then I did my blind item uh, about some of the details of what happened, and it was picked up as lead item on page six, along with uh, something in New York Magazine. So. I felt it was important to, in my own way, though I'm hardly Woodward and Bernstein, but in my own way, I put focus on a story that was obviously horrifying and completely true and uh, not only destroyed a life, but destroyed a lot of nightlife for quite some time. Yeah, and you wrote a lot about the nightlife. What, what was so intriguing about them um, that, you know, you had so much to say about it? About nightlife in general? Yes, sir. I like a world that is illusory and based on illusion and fantasy and hedonism. And once you enter that club and you're hearing the pulsing dance music, you've been to clubs, Alyssa, right? Yes. You see the pulsing lights and the performances and it just takes you away. I never thought you needed drugs or anything else like that. To me, I was always thrilled 
just by the experience. And I started uh, Studio 54 in the 70s was one of my first clubs. And that was the ultimate disco. I never thought, saw the need for any outside stimulation. Once you got into that club, it was an amazing experience. It was a theme park of gratification. I want to talk about Studio 54. I was so happy to meet Ian Schrager. I, I went to go and I interviewed uh, Matt. He did the, um, he directed the Studio 54 that was on Netflix, the documentary. Matt Turner was my editor of Vanity Fair for many years. Yes. Wonderful guy, wonderful guy. Um, so well, Ian I, Schrager was the business half. Steve Rebell was the face of Studio yeah. 54. And in the 80s, they opened Palladium. That was one of the clubs I wrote about a lot in the Village Voice. Oh, wow. Steve Rebell, uh, at studio, Steve Rebell would, would, if he was at the door, he would spot me, hey, Michael, because he loved the press, and he would pull me in. If Steve Rebell wasn't at the door, I had to deal with Mark Benneke, the doorman, sitting on this high stool, looking down at me like I was a piece of garbage. So I didn't always get in. But well, later, on, uh, later on, they had a press list, at a side entrance, so I was confirmed entrance, and everything was fine. And where were you working at the time as press? I was a freelancer writing for the Soho News, which was like an alternative to the Village Voice before I got the column in the Village Voice. It was like an even cooler alternative weekly than the Voice. Wow, that's so cool. And what, what kind of writing do you like? Do you like celebrity and uh, gossip or do you like crime? crime? I love celebrity gossip writing if done well and done fairly. And in the 70s, I kind of came of age reading what was called the new journalism. It was people like Gail Sheehy and Tom Wolfe. And they put a lot of personality, a lot of themselves into it. It was very different from the old journalism school type of journalism, where you had to have the inverted pyramid and all that stuff. I never even learned that because I didn't go to journalism school. I sat in on a few graduate classes because at Columbia, they didn't have an undergraduate journalism course. So I had to major in English Lit and sit in on graduate journalism classes and at this point, I was already freelancing, believe it or not, for outside publications. And I felt that the classes were a joke. They were like fake press conferences and stuff like that. I was doing real stuff already. I was in my teens. Sorry. No, I love new journalism because I put a new personal spin on journalism. That's what I was into. And do you think uh, anything held you back from not having a degree in journalism? I don't think anyone even cares if you have a bachelor's degree. I tell people to go get it. But no one ever asked me. <laughs> you know, even like even now, Michael. Like even Pardon? now, even now. Do you think if you don't have a, a, a bachelor's in journalism, do you think that holds you back now today? No, it didn't hold me back. It didn't hold. It didn't. Like I'm saying, you don't even need a bachelor's. But yeah. I still say you should go get it. Yeah. Uh, because it was a very valuable experience for me. And I did get a lot of journalism experience. I was writing for the school papers and I was t sitting in other graduate courses. I was freelancing. Do as much writing as you can. You don't have to get a degree in journalism. If you have a lot of extra money to burn, then go ahead, what the hell. I couldn't wait to join the workforce. I couldn't wait to get into the real world. And I was only 20 when I graduated Columbia, but I was ready. Wow, did you go, you went for four years? Is that right? Is that yes. how, okay. Wow, yeah, because you know, I have, a criminal justice degree. I was going to become a cop and um, it didn't work out, but I was just about to get into the academy and it didn't work out. So um, I've been a writer my whole life and a poet. Uh, and then I had asked Pete Hamill. I interviewed Pete Hamill from the New York Post and I said, should I call myself a journalist? He goes, do you have published writing out there? I said, yes. He goes, and yes, you are. Exactly. You and you can, have, you can have that degree with the extra two years of school and it doesn't guarantee you anything. It does not guarantee you a job. I don't right. think people just go, oh, wow, come right in. You have the degree. 
who cares? If you're a good writer and you can prove it with your clips and your links, then you're in like Flint, as long as you also are, are aggressive, professional, not afraid of deadlines. That's my advice. If you have any fear of deadlines, find another profession because it's all about the deadlines. Yeah, you know, when you have dead, do you do you do everything at the last minute? Do you find no. yourself? No, okay, so you I'll go on a- I'm the kind of person, if I get the Con Ed bill in the mail, I immediately write the check. I'm just neurotic. I don't want things hanging over me. The hardest thing in writing an article is the first sentence, but I force myself to come up with the first sentence, then the rest of it flows, and then you can rework it. But okay. I, I don't think I've ever missed a deadline. It's, it's just boom. I'm professional, I'm not afraid of, uh, having to turn in work by a certain time. And you can tell your editor, you know, like, can we, can I just turn this in in a month? It doesn't work that way. Uh, what advice would you give to somebody if they can't even find that, if the first sentence, I totally agree with you, it has to just come like that and then everything else flows. But what would you tell somebody who can't even get that first sentence? Should we like walk away from our report? Or... Find, another, find another profession because this isn't for you. Yeah. And it doesn't come easily, but I'm saying if it doesn't come at all, go elsewhere. But right. if you can do it, like I say, if you're professional, aggressive, not afraid of deadlines, and you have a passion for it and can't imagine doing anything else, then do it. When I started uh, freelancing in the 70s, somebody who had failed as a freelance writer told me, oh, don't do it. Don't pursue it. You'll never make it. I didn't make it. Thankfully, I ignored her. Mm -hmm. I just thought, well, she's a loser. That doesn't mean I have to be a loser. And I proved that she was wrong. Now, so many years later, Melissa, it's a whole different landscape and it's much harder to make a living as a writer right now than when I started. When I started, there were so many magazines. It was pre-internet, but the magazines were paying top dollars. Some of them paid more now than publications. Some of them paid more then than publications pay today, decades later, because of the proliferation of websites and competition and the death of print. They're not paying what they used to. So, what I still say is if you have a passion for it and you're good at it, still pursue it because I don't want to be that person telling you not to, but please have a backup plan or please have family money or, you know what I mean? Have some other side thing going so that you don't have to worry, especially if you live in New York because it is so darn expensive to live here. Yeah, it is. You're from Brooklyn, right? I was born in the Lower East Side, but when I was a kid, little, one and a half years old, uh, my parents and I moved to Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, grew up there. Old school Italian American macho neighborhood. Gay was not on the menu, so I knew I had to get over that bridge. And and sure enough, I ended up Columbia. Many years later, all the action is now in Brooklyn, and now I'm a bridge and tunnel going the other way. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, Williamsburg Park Slope, of course. Now, yeah, because everything's been priced out of Manhattan, so any nightlife is now in Brooklyn. Yeah, that's true. And um, I heard in a couple of interviews, uh, you were, you're an only child, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Uh, do you think writing helped you growing up? Were you an introvert? Were you an introvert? I was an introvert. I pretty much had like a bubble around myself. That's the only reason I hardly ever got bullied, thankfully, because I made myself invisible. My parents were Italian American, but they were kind of nonverbal. It was bizarre. They weren't very Italian. Uh, they weren't speaking to each other very much when I was growing up and they didn't speak much to me, but they loved me and took care of me. But I had to learn to communicate, not by speaking, but by writing. Uh, whenever I did raise my hand to speak in school, which took a lot of effort on my part, it always came out wrong. It was like Joe Biden or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I didn't know how to articulate because I hadn't spoken at home. 
so uh, I learned to just write notes for myself. And I, I would go to the movies by myself or with friends or family and come home and write little reviews for myself on index cards. And I actually thought maybe this could be a future for me. And many years after that, I saw Jeopardy, the game show, and the host asked one of the contestants during the interview segment, what do you do for a living? And he said, I'm a freelance writer. And I thought people can actually make a living out of that. And that's what I thought, maybe I could do that. And I, I was amazed that I was able to pull that off. Wow, and boy, did you get some career out of that. What, do you plan on retiring or no? No, I'm sure I'll die, you know, writing or being on with TV. With a pen in your hand. Doing a podcast. <laughs> yeah, with the, the old school, the pen, you know. Uh, yeah, I can't, everyone says, oh, you should take time off, relax, go see movies, travel. That's what my job involves. I yeah. go see movies for free, I get free trips, I, you know. My job is the ultimate vacation, but it is hard work, but it's yeah. work that I love. I adore it. That's right. I, my nights out are going to events. Yeah, what's so horrible? Why do I need a break from this? It's and true. also, and the payoff is that not only do I experience this lifestyle, I then get to write whatever I want about it, and then I get paid for it. That's right. I, I don't ever want to take a break. Yeah, no, I don't blame you. And um, Michael, I'm on Dr. Robbie. You really had me with this. You were on Talking Live with Dr. Robbie, and that's going to be airing this week. But you were on there, and we were talking. You were taught. You and Dr. Robbie were talking about media and being friends with celebrities. And I totally agree with you. And what did you say? I don't recommend that press people become friends with celebrities. It's corrupt. It blurs lines. Uh, as a press person, you totally lose objectivity. You suddenly don't want to write anything bad about them because they're your friend and they're not really your friend and they're just being nice to you because you're press. You might be annoying. I mean, I have my excesses. I'm, you know, some of my friends find me <laughs> neurotic, let's say, but uh, a celebrity is going to be all adoring of you because you'll write nice things about them. So it's not a real friendship. It's not recommended. One celebrity did call me recently. Oh, let's be friends. I read your article. Let's, let's have coffee. And then she couldn't seem to come through when I offered dates, possible dates to get together. And I was like, you know what? This is for the best. Let's just keep this professional. Yeah, it's true. It is very true. I, in the beginning, when I first started, I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to be friends. It's going to be great. And the next thing I know, once I put their article out, I'm off of Instagram. I'm like, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? You can't take it personal. And you cannot become friends with these, these subjects that you're writing about. I, I like what you said about that. You really had me there. Um, I wanted to ask you, what advice would you give to, uh, to a new graduate coming out, going into the world of writing? What would you recommend to them? Get as much writing experience as you can, even on Facebook. I mean, on anything. Get your own blog. Uh, submit your, your links with some ideas, not that many, because sometimes they'll steal them, uh -huh. to editors of publications you're interested in working for, and then follow up, not to the point where they're going to get a restraining order against you, but just to make sure that you are circling back to remind them of who you are and what you're interested in doing. Only pitch sites or publications that you really feel you belong at and that you want to write for. Don't just send your name everywhere. Um, I used to have to only compete with a handful of writers. Now you're competing with the whole world because everybody's a writer. Everyone's on Facebook. Everyone's on Twitter, Instagram, writing, writing, writing. Some of them are very clever. Yeah. Uh, so it's not that easy, but it's easier to get experience in expressing yourself. I, I, sometimes there are things I put on Facebook for free. Obviously they're not paying me, Yeah. but things that wouldn't fit into my column, which is for newnownext.com, or that might not fit into other publications. Mm -hmm. 
It's just a, a late-breaking point of view that I have want to express about Donald Trump or anything in showbiz, the Academy Awards. Boom, you put it on Facebook, and it's a way to express your point of view. And I have a lot of followers. A lot of people look to my point of view. And sometimes it's not even what I'm talking about. It's the way I talk about it. They want my style, my point, my approach. I love it. I love it. Has anybody ever put down your writing? Oh, sure. What do you say to that? Because that recently happened to me, and I'm like, what? But it was, it was actually just an editor. Uh, it was just it was published wrong, but we fixed it. But somebody did that to me, and I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I'm so embarrassed. <laughs> well, what do you say, Michael, to, to that? Just, uh, you know, I had one editor that dropped me uh, and said, I don't know, just dismissed me. Uh, someone else said, uh, uh, some famous comedian said to me, you write brilliantly about people that don't matter. And I was like, ah. that's a left-handed compliment. Of course, you're going to get criticized all the time. If you don't, that means nobody's noticed you. The whole world now is a social network mob of people looking to take everyone down and yeah. criticize, right, and cancel. So if no one's even said you suck, you're, you're doing something wrong. Uh, as long as the praise exceeds the negativity, I think you're okay. Yeah. Of course, I'll only remember the negative. I just I'll harp on it and punish myself and say, they're right, they're right. And then yeah. logic takes over and you're like, no, they're just nasty. Right, right. Sometimes right. they have an agenda. They want to be you, you know? Yeah. They, they want your job or your position and they want to bring you down. And I found that to be the case a few times. Uh, I'm sorry you had to go through that. You're so amazing. Can we talk about your fashion? I like your fashion. Oh, sure. I'm pretty warm <laughs> today in my lumberjack shirt. <laughs> <laughs> I love your fashion, though. You're so loud when you go out with your jackets. It's so amazing, though. And you wear yeah. different styles. So do you, does anybody ever dress you? Do any celebrities ever dress you? The uh, I have a friend of mine named Christian Freedom uh, who has helped me, style me through the years. In the 80s, I had this other guy, Albert, who did incredible outfits for me. And, uh, I like not just being a boring part of the party. I don't want to be the old school journalist in the corner with the pad. Being you're boring. not. You're not. I've seen you out and I've seen you sing. You're not. I mean, I'm still me. a shy person. I feel like <laughs> hiding in the corner. But it's a way to bring me out if I'm wearing, you know, once I was wearing a martini glass on my head and with a big olive with a toothpick in it. <laughs> yeah, just crazy stuff. For a book party, I had dozens of my book cover just turned into like a bodysuit. And I want to be part of the party. And I'm also shy and trying to get attention, trying to get noticed. And it's a way to then have people notice your writing. It's like, oh, you're the one who so-and-so. And being on TV, similarly, uh, I've gotten a lot of attention for my writing because people suddenly go, oh, you're the one who wrote that column. I love you. Yeah, I love it so much. You're such an icon. Please don't ever forget that. Thank you. But on TV, I try to dress conservatively. Yeah. Only because... It gets your points of view across better. Correct. Correct. Um, and what I was like my life? Children. I know. That's what I was going to say. I was going to bring Hendrix, my dog, with me. I'm like, you know, but nobody's going to pay attention to what we're saying. So what I'm saying. That's what I mean. Yeah. If I go on CNN and wear a feather boa, no one's going to listen to what I'm saying. So I try to just wear, you know, button-down shirt and a jacket. <laughs> I got this from Michael Runway. I'll have a, fruit, a floral arrangement on my head. <laughs> You're the best. Listen, this is the last weekend I can wear this, so I gotta bring it back to Red the Runway. And I think it's a stalker <laughs> style or something. It's so pretty, though. Um, and what are you working on now? Tell everybody uh, one of your columns um, with the uh, LGBT. 
Uh, but I have a column on a site called newnownext.com. That's one word. And that is MTV VH1 logo Viacom's queer site. And it's just like the Village Voice. Every Monday I weigh in, except it used to be Wednesday. And I write whatever I want. I do celebrity interviews. I do items. I do reviews. So when people say I miss your writing, it's like, well, I'm still doing it. And yeah. you can find me on Facebook and on Twitter. I'm uh, Mikey Musto. And I always link to all my my articles. If you don't want to just Google me, look at my Facebook or Twitter page and I link to my articles. You're everywhere. And when, can I just, one last question. Where do you see yourself in five years? <laughs> uh, if I'm lucky doing the same damn thing. I, don't, you know, I said that a long time ago. I remember saying, oh, if I'm 40, well, now if I'm 90, uh, <laughs> I hope that I am doing the same thing because I have a dream job. Yes. I get to see Broadway shows, movies, meet celebrities, write whatever I want and get paid and live just an extraordinary life and meet the most amazing people like yourself. Thank you, sir. I am so proud to know you now and I can't wait to work with you in the future. Thank you That's so great. much. For, thank you, sir. Thank you so much thank for being you. here. Bye. And we'll see you soon. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. You are. Hi, Lauren. Hey, good to see you. Good to see you too. You look beautiful. Uh, so it's so nice to have you here. So this is Lori Zelenko, and she is the editor-in-chief at Pet Lifestyle Magazine. Here we go, Pet Lifestyle. What is it? Yes, thank you so much, which is um, the magazine that I write for. So uh, she's my editor, and I'm even more nervous. But thank you so much for being here, Lori. Um, we just spoke to, do you know Michael Musto? Are you familiar with his work? Of course, yes. Unless you live under a rock, how do you not know this this beautiful man? Exactly, yeah. We had a great time. Um, now you heard part of it. Say it again. I heard part of it. It was entertaining. Oh, I think yeah. Nice. He's so much fun. He's so much fun. I love him. Yeah. Um, so now you've been in publishing for over twenty years. At least, yes. Wow. Um, how do you think it's changed from then, then until now? Michael had touched upon uh, that publishing is dead. What, what, what's well, your... I think speed is important to note with the onset of everything digital from photography to websites, to, you know, now to podcasts, the speed of communication has increased tremendously. And mm -hmm. um, the depth and breadth of it, the opportunities for communication are so many more and so many more far ranging opportunities. You know, there are things you might not have talked about much before, but now you're talking about in a tighter timeline, more in depth and um, mm -hmm. more expressively. Look wow. at Lucy Perry and Woody Allen, for example. Look at that dynamic for what's happening in Hashtag. So you see how the voice of authors, you know, is having greater weight. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. And how, um, how did you get involved with Pet Lifestyle Magazine? It's actually uh, pretty interesting on how, how you got involved. Um, well, basically, I was writing two pages for them every month uh, for New York Lifestyles, which is a sister publication, if you will, or parent publication. And um, I was writing about pets uh, called Paws Down, Tails Up. So uh -huh. I was sharing fun fashion tidbits and other good information about pets, um, it sort of grew into its own publication, just very naturally. Wow. And why, what's pet life, why is Pet Lifestyle Magazine so different than other publications? Well, the majority of the publications 
the majority dealing with that are trade publications. So they're industry publications talking about, you know, new brands launching and, you know, just general information that's relevant to the trade, how to run a pet store, things like that. Uh -huh. So we take kind of a different approach in sharing stories of interesting rescues, talking about celebrities who have a platform in pet activism, if you will, pet advocacy, and, um, you know, talking about different quirky things, like how music therapy can help your dog, or in the current issue, we have a story on a toucan rescue in Costa Rica. So we, we go far afield and talk about what's new, what's fresh, what's unusual, what's different, and of course, lots of celebrities and travel information now, because everyone wants to take their first child with them. Yeah, you go, you go in depth with a lot of uh, uh, different topics as far as pets are concerned. Yeah, I like that a lot, uh, that you do that. Um, now, can I ask you, what kind of writers do you look for when, um, when you look for writers for the magazine? Well, first of all, they need to be pet friendly. They need to have some level of empathy for animals. Mm -hmm. um, they need to be willing to explore, do an in-depth dialogue with someone interesting like Sir Patrick Stewart or the Tucan Rescue in Costa Rica. Um, they need to be able to be flexible, accommodating, able to work on a tight deadline, and creative. And of course, love animals. Yeah, totally. Totally. You know I love animals. <laughs> I love animals more than people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. So do you. <laughs> Um, now, being an editor, I had asked Michael this as well, as him being a writer. Now, you're an editor. What, what kind of relationship do you think is healthy between a writer and an editor? Well, you give a writer a story idea, and you hope that they will follow it through and create a story that is relevant and interesting. Sometimes they come back to you and say, like on the Koala Rescue story, um, the writer had did a great story in the end, but not every hospital treating koalas in Australian wildlife was able to talk to him or give him pictures. So, you know, he had to be very, very resourceful in getting to sources. So I want look for people who are creative, who are resourceful, who are animal friendly. And in terms of a relationship, um, it's pretty open and pretty flexible. I encourage them to uh, pursue their goals, pursue getting great sources. You know, it meets the deadlines, of course. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's important. Um, do you ever change anything? Like, do you ever, uh, did you ever take anybody's voice away from them being an editor? I don't think I take their voice away from them, but mm. I'd like to believe I enhance it. And once in a while, you'll find a writer who says, you know what? I created this in my voice and I don't really care what you want, so I'm going to just do it my way. And if it doesn't work for you, fine, let's just move on. So that was an interesting experience with the last issue where the individual, I felt, missed the story. And when I tried to communicate and redirect, there was um, a lack of comfort on their part, which is fine. So I just brought in another writer to take over the story and do it differently, more in line with what I felt was appropriate. Yeah. So if the writer doesn't, align with the goals of the magazine, which is keeping it upbeat, keeping it positive, not dwelling on the negative, not dwelling on illness, not dwelling on loss, but dwelling on a positive path forward and the good that's being done by so many personalities, 
if they aren't able to align with those goals, if I can't figure that out from the beginning, then I figure it out and then when we change direction. Yeah. And how, um, yeah, that's, yeah, absolute. Um, how do you look into uh, different ways to help the publication grow? Because you do a lot, you wear a lot of hats in the magazine. So um, mm -hmm. what, what, how do you, what do you do? We have a presence at shows like we just did the Super Pet Expo and the World Dog Expo is coming up in June, so we'll have a presence there. And, um, you know, so we have a lively presence at real-time events where we sample a lot of different really cool brands, everything from the latest treat to um, a natural solution for keeping um, insects and other pests at bay that won't be harmful to the pet. So we sample cool products, we hand out magazines, we offer photo opportunities for pet parents in our booth, and um, now we're doing this wonderful podcast. So there'll be lots of other ways. Uh, we'll be changing and upgrading the website, and adding a, you know, see it, purchase it function, a shopping cart, and uh, we have a terrific website added in, so we have lots of different opportunities. And of course, you know, there are so many wonderful celebrities on our cover, like Georgina Bloomberg this time around, um, who were just so honored to have participating with the magazine. And certainly we hope that their voice and their involvement counts. And uh, who, who have you had on the magazine? I know Donnie Wahlberg was one of them. Well, I think Beth Stern, Mrs. Howard Stern, who's a wonderful, amazing advocate for cats, uh, particularly. Um, She's she actually contributes, is that right? She, yeah, she, she did contribute, she does contribute. Yes, yeah, she was our first cover. And then, let's see, we had Donnie Wahlberg, we've had Bernadette Peters, you know, she spearheaded or she created um, Broadway Barks, which is a wonderful annual event where the Broadway celebrities come out to help raise money for Animal Rescue. Mm -hmm. And uh, who else have we had? We've had Donnie Wahlberg of Blue Bloods on CBS. We've had Dr. Evan Anton, the sexiest vet alive for People Magazine, and he has a show on Animal Planet. We've had Howie Mandel of Animals Doing Thing on Nat Geo and America's Got Talent, and he's a very funny guy, um, telling us all about all the crazy animals he's had in his house. And who else did we have? We had uh, Ryan Eagle of New Amsterdam. Um, he helps NBC clear the shelters. He has quite an amazing platform in Animal Rescue. And um, who else? Uh, currently, Georgina Bloomberg. And who knows who's next? Uh, Lori, how do you find the stories um, for content? Do you, you do you seek out on the internet? Because I know that you're you're the one who take who finds all the content for um, for the writers. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, for the most part, I assign the stories. Occasionally, a writer comes to me and says, "This is a story I really want to write." Like we had someone talk about going camping with their dogs in the current issue. Um, so yes, occasionally a PR person will pitch and say, you know, like we heard from a wonderful rescue group in LA and learned all about Sir Patrick Stewart's help with that, with Wags and Walks. So, you know, we learned, we do learn from some PR people who do pitch us, but sometimes stories evolve intuitively. Like I learned to a friend about the Costa Rica Chukon rescue. Um, and koala rescue in the Australian wildfires is very much top of mind right now. Wow. Yeah, that's, um, Lori, I missed the last part. What did you just say? Koala <laughs> rescue. 
I'll show you. Oh, koala. Koala bears? The little fuzzy teddy bears in Australia that are so burnt and damaged by the uh, wildfires. Yes. In the current issue, we have a wonderful story about that. Oh, wow. They're not tick, they're not bears, right? What kind of, they're, they're in the, uh, what family are they in? Uh, you know, you have to read the story to find out more. Okay. There's lots of great information and talking mm -hmm. all about the wonderful hospitals that are taking such great care of them because climate change too has impacted and the drought, lack of eucalyptus leaves, lack of water, and they're actually quite solitary little individuals. They may hang with each other, but they're not super people friendly. So they're being driven to interact with people, which is really not their personality. So wow. it's um, a big change for them. Did we get any koalas here in America from, from Australia, from that whole fire, do you know? But do you have that in the article? I know that rescuers are going there from all over the world. Rescuers have been trying to put out the bushfires from all over the world. And there are mm -hmm. quite a number of Australian um, hospitals that take care of the Australian wildlife, including the koalas, and do a wonderful job. And they try to keep them until they're well enough to go back. But what is there to go back to? The, reforestation isn't going to occur fast enough for their climate to be as it was. So they're having a tough time, these little creatures. Wow. Oh, poor, those poor animals. Ay, ay, ay. Um, what, what do you plan on doing with the magazine? Do you have any uh, future goals? Anything different? Well, grow awareness, grow the circulation, um, you know, make a difference, encourage people to understand their companion animals better, encourage them to uh, take better care of the animals in their lives and be responsible pet owners and also inform and educate them. Wow. And um, I wanted to ask you, where do you get uh, Pet Lifestyle Magazine? You can find it in kiosks on Park Avenue or Lexington or Madison on the street corners. You can find it in places like Lowe's Hotel and uh, probably Grand Central. Uh, I know that commuters receive it when they get off the train at our train stations here in the city uh, at Penn and Grand Central. So um, it's around, it's around. It's everywhere you might anticipate a wonderful lifestyle magazine to be. And Pet Lifestyle in particular is in vet's offices and places where you might go to pick up pet food. Oh wow, yeah. I, um, I actually love working uh, for you and, and working with you because it's, I love pets, first of all. So it's a passion of mine. So like you said, we had Sir Patrick Stewart. We had Rachel Smith, Rachel Grant. Um, we, yeah, we did uh, John Namachek, who wonderful guy. He driver, right. Yeah, he was great with his whole family of dogs. And wow. Georgina herself has something like seven dogs and 13 horses. That's and amazing. A cat and a goat and a pig. That's amazing. And you will talk about like other animals. It's just not dogs. It's it's all pets. Is that it's right? Dogs and cats. And yeah, we talked about koalas in the last issue and chukons. Uh -huh. So we do go beyond doggies and kitties. Yes. But most celebrities that we profile seem to have a doggie or a kitty. Um, we have somebody who may have a kitty who we're talking to uh, coming up. You know, so we have um, all different kinds of people and all different kinds of pets. And uh, but, you know, it's just, it tends to be a lot of dogs and cats, um, but we have a great story in this issue on the Billy Joel Rooms at North Shore Animal League, 
that are designed to be very comfortable at home like but still very innovative and creative cat habitats uh -huh. cats even try to tap out billy joel tunes on the piano they um sleep in you know fender amp sort of little nest speaker boxes and have a wonderful environment in honor of the piano man wow it's designed by mario Bori of square paws and that's out at north shore animal league so that's a wonderful kitty cat story and uh, then, as I said, we have koalas in Australia and Costa Rica and their wildlife situation. So we do try to go far afield. We're even thinking about um, Spanish hunting dogs for the June issue. I love it so much. Thank you, Lori, so much. And just one last question. Sure. Um, what advice would you give somebody just coming out of uh, school that wants to get into the writing field? Well, if they're talented, they can intern or apprentice. Um, you know, get a byline, really. It's, that's the name of the game. Get a byline or start an Instagram that's very clever, very fun, which is also visual. Demonstrate that you have an eye as well as a sense of words. Some of the young writers I deal with go, go to me, oh, gee, you expect me to get pictures, much less caption them, or else um, they write but I wouldn't really say their challenge is writing, although they are committed and obsessed with becoming a journalist. Um, so learning what the story is, getting the story, pursuing the story, sticking with it, really. And, you know, publish, publish, publish. Get your balance out there. I love it so much. Where can we find Pet Lifestyle Magazine and Instagram handle, the social media handle, please? Yeah, I think it's Pet Lifestyle Mag on Instagram, and our Instagram is always hot and happening. We have Facebook and Twitter too, but Great. Google Pet Lifestyles will find it. Beautiful. I'll put it, I'll put it on my website too. Great. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so much, Lori. You're the best, and I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank I'll talk you. to you soon. Take okay. care. Bye. She's so wonderful. Do we have Bernadette on? Yes, we do. Ah, there she is. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a wonderful show. Hopefully it's a lot of information and, and good information given to our listeners. And we have Bernadette on our show. Now, just pronounce your last name because I put it, I did a video and I don't know if I said it right. Say it. It's Giacomazzo. Giacomazzo. Not a lot of people get it right, so I don't even take it personally if people get it wrong anymore, I'll be honest with you. But, uh, you know, that's why sometimes I go by, like, just Bernadette G or just BG. Um, not because I don't published... my last name, but <laughs> what's that? <laughs> no, as your published name, is that what you, you just do, Bernadette G, is that right? No, I do Bernadette Giacomo. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, and you know what's good about it is that I'm pretty much the only one in the field with that last name so yeah. when people see it they know that it's me so <laughs> well you're the best and we're so happy to have you on here um well, thank you for having me thank you so much burn you have been in pr for 20 years over 20 years yeah i mean mostly in, in journalism mm -hmm. editorial writing pr just really a very um good blend of all of the above mm -hmm. um 22 years and counting, actually, which really shows my age, but I don't really care. Um, 
I got my, you know, I, I, I got my start in my junior year of college. I decided that this is what I really wanted to do. And this is what I was going to focus on. Uh-huh. You got to remember that at this time, the internet was, it was starting to come up, but we were still using dial-up connections. I, I graduated college in 99. Uh-huh. And, you know, so we were still using dial-up connections and it was a whole process to get on the internet. Sometimes it wasn't cost efficient. And so I realized that this was the wave of the future. So I started to write for a lot of online spaces uh-huh. back then. And I remember doing this and approaching the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. No lie. The Pittsburgh uh-huh. Post-Gazette, because I, I was at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and I approached them with all of my samples that I had written online. Uh-huh. And their answer to me was, because I, wa- I didn't even want to get paid. I just wanted an internship, to uh, the Pet Life Editor's point. I just wanted an internship. This is what I really wanted to do. Uh-huh. And they told me that I had to come back with, quote, real samples of real writing in real published places. Because the um, internet just wasn't going to cut it. What year was this? Yeah? Huh? Sorry, what year was this? 98. Okay. Year before I graduated. And I just, it stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know what? That's fine. That's fine. I'm going to prove you wrong. Because I'm crazy enough to believe that this is the wave of the future. And yeah. sure enough, um, I was right. Um, when I first got into journalism and writing and PR professionally, I did get lucky enough to start with uh, a print publication. But as print started becoming redundant, I realized that I had to transition to online very quickly. But Mm -hmm. for me, it wasn't difficult because I had already worked in the online space since before it was even advisable to do so. But that said, I did make sure to make it my business to learn best practices um, different platforms and everything else so that I made myself indispensable so that even if me as a writer was rendered redundant, me as an editor was not, me as a publicist was not, me as a photographer was not. So I always had like that specific skill set yeah. and I always kept on top of it so that if one thing started to fall back to the wayside, I could yeah. pick it up in other ways, and I would never be unemployed. And knock wood, thank Jesus and everything else, I have not been unemployed for more than two weeks since I first started this. Do you consider yourself freelance? You know, at this point, I don't know if freelance is the right word, okay. because I get steady work from right. all the places that I work for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think freelancers today are a lot more um, sporadic with their work, and I'm not. You will always see something published by me every single day. Okay. On some platform or another. Oh, all right. Yeah, like like you work for, um, can we say the places you work for? Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so yeah. like your, your tango, your tango, you're mm-hmm. constantly uh, posting and, and writing. Your work yeah. is amazing. And Hip Hop DX. And um, I just got commissioned to do a piece I've been wanting to do for the longest time for the Edge Media Network. Um, this is more of an investigative piece. I, um, I haven't made the announcement except now on your show. Oh, wow. But I'm looking forward to this challenge. <laughs> so, 
So you you like crime? You like to you you like to uh, write about crime? You know, in, in the case of what I'm working on for the Edge Media Network, yeah, I'm working on an unsolved crime. Mm-hmm. And there's a reason that this unsolved crime sits with me and mm-hmm. bothers me, mm-hmm. because in a different set of circumstances, in other words, if the victim were more appealing, mm-hmm. this wouldn't be an unsolved crime. This mm-hmm. would have already been in the bag. Right. Um, and so I, I had to write about it. And, you know, when they commissioned me, when Matthew Wexler commissioned me, I said, mm-hmm. I'm going to turn in the most amazing work he's ever seen in his life. Yeah. And this will be the first of many. So, but it's a new challenge for me to do, um, not just crime, but like investigative reporting. Um, Because I've been in like the entertainment field for so long that it comes second nature to me. Wow, so it's not challenging to you to do, um, to, to get the information. Do you think there's a lot of wrong information on the internet? For, for a reporter to find any information, you know, to, to get the correct info? You know, yes and no. Any place you look, there's always wrong information. Mm-hmm. Um, to, just to clarify, it's not that entertainment isn't challenging for me because every day is a new challenge in a different way. Right. It's that, I, you know, when, when you do something for so long, in my case, 20 plus years, mm-hmm. it becomes second nature to you. You know, when you first learn to drive a car, it's a challenge because you're sitting there like, okay, do I make the left? Do I make the right? But after you've been driving for 20 years, it becomes second nature. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be careful. That doesn't mean you shouldn't learn better techniques. It doesn't mean you slack off. It just means that you're not as nervous when you do it. But to get back to your question about wrong information, look, there's wrong information everywhere you look, newspaper, the internet, um, books, especially today with media companies being the way they are, Mm -hmm. I think that the best thing that you as a journalist can do for yourself is go to the first-hand source whenever you can. Don't just rely on the internet to tell you what to think or how to think. Don't rely on newspapers. Don't rely on TV. If you don't hear it from the horse's mouth, Mm -hmm. double and triple think about it. I'm not going to tell you what to think, but I am going to tell you how to think. In other words, flex your mind a little bit and try to wrap your mind around why something is being said or what's being said and what's the end result of that thing being said. I love it. That's great advice. Thank you so much. Um, We're actually out of of time. I'm so upset. But what I'm going to do is we're going to do a a recording when you have a moment and I'm going to put content because I had so many questions for you uh, being in PR and as a writer. So We'll do different, we'll do a recording together and then I'll put it on my website if that's okay with you. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, the best. I can do it now. Uh, Thank you, Vern. I'll get off the phone and then I'm going to just download something. So I'll I'll call you back and thank you so much. You got it. All right, babe, I'm here. Love you, girl. I love you. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you guys so much for joining us. I hope that we provided um, useful information. Um, I always had a second job as a rest in the restaurant industry, and I totally believe that you have to uh, clean the toilets first before you dip your hand in the um, cash register. And there have been times when I didn't get paid for my work, but I had such a passion about my work and content that I wanted to get out into the world. And thank God I had publishers to help me through that. So nothing is ever a waste. Um, and I never gave up. 
And actually there's a lyric inside of um, Eminem. You know, the publishing and writing is, is a very difficult uh, job. And even like doing this, like I don't even know how I'm doing this. I black out and then I wake up like around three o'clock. But I just want to get information out to you guys. Um, send me a DM or send me an email to Melissa at Melissa Show at melissaclarkshow.com if you have any questions or any comments and I'll be happy to answer them for you. Um, but I, there is a lyric inside of Eminem's Lose Yourself and he says uh, inside of the song, success is my only mother effing option, failure is not. So keep doing what you're doing, the money will follow and just keep being passionate and thank you for joining us.